Welcome everyone to Andy Here's the 80s, the show where we try and find the absolute best albums from the 1980s. Here in season two, we examine the work of a different artist or band each episode, and this week it's all about the English rock band The Cure. Joining me as always on this musical journey of discovery is my co-host Aaron Keck. How are you, Aaron? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. You know, last season we heard The Cure's 1989 album, Disintegration, during our Wide World of Pop Music episode. And I knew fairly soon after when I started putting together this season uh, that we'd focus on specific bands and that this would be one that I wanted to return to. Uh, so aside from last season, Aaron, what's your history with The Cure? Uh, I know the singles. And actually, the the funny thing is, like, The Cure is such an 80s band, but mm-hmm. as looking through their oeuvre their discography and like the singles that i really know more than any others are the ones from the 90s that we're not even going to get to like friday i'm in love like the Mm -hmm. the ones that came out in what's the album wish that came out in in 92 like that's the album that i know the most so a lot of this was new and uh another kind of fun experience for me this week is i know that the cure has this reputation for being this depressed uh, super emo kind of band and i never mm-hmm. really got why because i really like i know them from disintegration that's kind of a a, a down album mm-hmm. uh but other than that like the singles have a tendency to be super upbeat and fun and optimistic and hopeful so it's like why i get that robert smith goes on stage with the makeup and the 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 hair all disheveled but why do they have such a reputation well now i know because i got to listen to these early (laughs) albums and good lord yeah totally yeah i was kind of in the same boat you know i know the the singles and everything and we uh and yeah i was kind of thinking like uh you know there's a long stretch of albums here where i didn't know a single song before before this yeah me either so i did actually get to see them live in 2004 at uh the hf festival back in maryland Awesome. Uh, so shout, out, shout out to everybody in the DMV who went to HF festivals back in the day. But uh, they were they were pretty good then, and they had an album in 2004 that came out that uh, I couldn't tell you a single song from now. But <laughs> even at that show, they played, you know, all the songs you recognize anyway. Of course, uh, right. So it, it's it was what, it's what you go for. Like all these all these established, long, great bands that who's got a discography that go back thirty years. And insist on putting out new albums and then you go to their show and it's like, We're gonna play you our, our newest hit. It's like this is not a hit and it's not gonna be. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, they were they were good, but uh it you know, took me till now to really go in and dig dig into the actual albums. Uh so let's uh, let's dig in here ourselves. The story of the band begins in Crawley, West Sussex, in the southeast of England. Robert Smith, Michael Dempsey, and Lawrence Lowell Tolhurst were all grade school friends who had become increasingly musically inclined throughout the 70s, playing in a few local bands together after settling into a semi-regular gig under the name Easy Cure, named after a song of Lowell's, and were joined at this point by guitarist Paul Thompson. Uh, the punk rock boom of 77 kind of focused these lads into a more serious group, playing shows around Crawley, entering talent competitions. And uh, after refining their sound, uh, Porl actually decided to leave the group in 78 and then decided that his, his style was not at, uh, in, the, in the vein of their style at that time. But he would, of course, be back later. Uh, at that point, they shortened their name to simply The Cure. And as a trio, they recorded a demo that got sent to A&R rep Chris Perry over at Polydor Records right as he was starting up the imprint label Fiction and signed the group to be, and became their manager as well. 
now with a record contract and a manager, they got to work recording and releasing music. First single, Killing an Arab, came out in December of 78, based on the Albert Camus novel Stranger, which continues our tradition of literary songwriters on this show. <laughs> It's really just it's really just British people who are just <laughs> disaffected with the whole Thatcher era. And and people maybe in America who are wishing that they were part of a Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. Uh but so in May of seventy nine, their debut album, Three Imaginary Boys, was released in the UK. Uh but over here in the US we got a slightly different debut album, which is the first one we're going to talk about here today. And in February of nineteen eighty, the album Boys Don't Cry was released in the US. Uh, so I will play a little bit of the title track, the band's second overall single, and then we'll talk about that album. kind of a kind of an obvious choice to play the the title track and probably also the biggest hit off of the album mm -hmm. but i'm really glad you chose this song because i i love this song i think it's one of their their best yeah it's a great song it's funny that you know we always make fun of bands especially english bands it seems like for putting out singles that don't end up on the album right mm -hmm. and so then i'm glad for this american release they took all the singles and put them on the album because all <laughs> the singles don't appear on three imaginary boys but they are on boys don't cry which is something that they would continue to do through the 80s right like there's several of their biggest hits we're not really going to talk about because they weren't on any of their albums there, yeah, there's a couple throughout that they still put out just as singles or ended up on other compilations. Uh, but yeah, this was, I, I was glad that, uh, you know, I could skirt the rules a little bit and, and you play this version <laughs> of the debut album. Uh, because I do, yeah, Boys Don't Cry is almost certainly my favorite song on this one. And uh, it's one of the ones I recognized going into this. I had the fun experience with this one. So I don't know very much about the 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 cure beyond the singles like i said so just kind mm -hmm. of diving into the album and i like i when i say i don't know this anything beyond the singles i mean the big singles like the ones we're going right. to get to towards the end of this episode like those are the cure songs that i really know so i knew nothing at all about this album going in and i'm listening to it and i'm i was listening to it in the car so i didn't have access to the internet that i could 
uh, take notes or, or get information about these songs or what the singles are, or how big they were. So I was taking mm-hmm. notes and like making a note of what my favorite songs were on this album. And then I went and looked it up and it's like, oh, I picked the singles. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it is funny. That, so the uh, songs that are only on Boys Don't Cry and which were released on singles or the B-sides of those singles uh, are Boys Don't Cry, Plastic Passion, Jumping Someone Else's Train, Killing an Arab, and then on some versions you get World War as well. And yeah, yeah. Boys Don't Cry and Jumping Someone Else's Train were my two favorites those, <laughs> on this one. Uh, I'll I'll add Fire in Cairo to it, but other than that, yeah, Boys Don't okay. Cry and Jumping Someone yeah. Else's Train, those were those were my two as well. Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah, Fire in Cairo is a great song, but it gets like you got to be really good in order to start like spelling out the words of the yeah. title in your song. Like there's there's only so many songs that do that that actually do it well. And I was like, <laughs> oh, come on, guys, you're doing so well with this. Yeah. All right. Can you give me your best uh, Fire in Cairo chorus? Oh, God. <laughs> F-I-R-E-I-N-C-A-R-I. Oh, I no, oh, I can't. Almost. Like, <laughs> <laughs> almost made it. <laughs> no, I, I got know, it was... right. F-I-R-E-I-N-C-A-I-R-O. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. What did I miss the first time? <laughs> I think the I and the R in Cairo oh, were flip flopped. Yeah. yeah. Well, those were fire in Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Korea. That's a, that sounds like a uh, you know like a shop at the mall next to the pottery. <laughs> Buy your watches at Carrillo. <laughs> I know, but that, that was one I would also hear in the car and consider singing along to, but then never did. <laughs> that is a very accurate de- description of like my reaction <laughs> to this song, too. It's like, this is, a, this is kind of a bopping song that I could sing along to. I won't, but I could. <laughs> but I could. I've thought about it. I've I thought won't. about it, yeah. It occurred to me. <laughs> Uh, the this one was also produced by Chris Perry, who then put together the Three Imaginary Boys track list without consulting the band, and which upset Robert Smith, especially because of the. Uh, I don't know if you listen to any of the Three Imaginary Boys songs, but one of them is a cover of Foxy Lady, that is clearly just like them messing around in the studio, not intending uh-huh. to be recorded, and then <laughs> it ends up on the album. It winds up on the album, yeah, of course. Yeah. So he was a little upset about that. So I feel like they probably, you know, maybe even the band prefers this version of the record, but because at least it has the songs that they wanted people to hear the most since those have the singles. (laughs) Weird to like put out an album and not tell the band what's on it. Like, yeah, I know. I I don't know if maybe, you know, they're like the first band on this new label of his. I don't know if he was worried about, I don't know, putting together the first album, but it seems like I feel like you're worried about the, the wrong band, thing but... if that's the case like yeah if exactly. you're if you're like this is your first band that you're that you're recording and you're producing and you're a brand new label like i feel like the hesitancy and uncertainty that goes along with it would lend itself to not just making your own decisions and not consulting anyone like that's a that's a level of hubris that uh yeah. you, you don't see in too many people yeah, a bold move to say the least. Yes. I think. <laughs> Believe the word is chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, lots of chutzpah. Uh, but in support of the boys' records, uh, they toured as the opening act for Susie and the Banshees, a tour during which Banshees guitarist John McKay would quit the band, and so then Robert Smith took over for him, playing in both bands for the rest of the tour, and this kind of helped reinforce the direction he wanted to take the band in for the next album. Uh, but 
bassist Michael Dempsey was not convinced. Uh, so Smith also around this time recorded some songs under the name Cult Hero with a friend and bassist named Simon Gallup, uh, who was getting along quite well with Smith at this point. And the Cult Hero songs are still a little kind of new wavy sounding, kind of like these ones were. But uh, he was more into the sound that Smith was starting to develop for this next album. And when he presented some demos to him that Dempsey disliked, uh, that was enough for him to leave the band and the same day get replaced by Simon Gallup. Uh, and then keyboardist Matthew Hartley would also join the band at this point. And the foursome enters the studio to record their sophomore album, this time with Robert Smith producing himself, along with Mike Hedges, who engineered their debut. And the results was the released in April of 1980 as 17 Seconds. I'm going to play the lead single from this album, A Forest, and then we'll discuss the album. one was the beginning now of their dark gothic cure sound that we knew existed but maybe didn't hear uh, as much of before but uh, this song in particular was my favorite on the album i don't know about you i okay so maybe although really (laughs) nothing on this album stood out for me and i went back and i listened to this one a couple of times specifically this song a forest because i have since seen several uh, websites that try to like list or rank the top 10 Cure songs of all time or the top 20 or the top 40. Oh, readers polls. Here's the, the, the magazine's rock critic, like ranking their top Mm -hmm. favorites. And a forest just keeps coming back and back and back and making the top two, the top five, the top 10 on all of these lists. And I just don't get it with this song. Like (laughs) all of the other ones that just keep recurring on, 
these are less like, yep, I I get it, I get it, I like it, I I appreciate it. Like this one is just ugh. And I kind of feel that way about the whole album, to be honest. Like this whole this whole dark period, and like this this sounds like you're a high schooler writing poetry. <laughs> yeah, it does a little bit. And and I will say one thing that I learned kind of early on this season specifically is that if I I can't I have to spread out some of these albums a little bit because they'll mm-hmm. start to run together. I, I happened with a couple artists early on, and it definitely was beginning to be the case with these next three albums where they started to run together in my mind and I was like okay I have to listen to these separately so I know what's what <laughs> how much of a gap did you leave in between like just a day, like a day I would listen to one, one okay day that's not one bad that's not bad yeah. yeah okay but uh for me yeah this one it's you need a at little... least a day between faith and pornography otherwise you just get confused <laughs> it's sacrilegious otherwise yeah but uh, <laughs> the uh but if you don't, it only takes 17 seconds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, A Forest for me was just the one on here that I thought they took this this sound they were going for and actually made the most of it. I think it has obviously that great bass line. Uh, and then it also just kind of builds to something uh, more interesting and more exciting than all the rest of the songs, which kind of mm. stay in that kind of dirgy mode for maybe yeah, I think Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that. But I think for me that says more about the rest of the album than this song. <laughs> Uh-huh. I think uh, the there's another play for today. I thought was a pretty good one too. That's the more kind of slightly more upbeat second song on the album. Uh, but yeah, it it is. You know, on the one hand, it's a more consistent sound probably than than Boys Don't Cry or uh, Three Imaginary Boys. But at the same time, if if that sound isn't doing anything for you, then it's going to be kind of a dud of a record. And it's it's sad that I wasn't getting into it because you can tell, like, even with these three albums that we're going to be talking about, like the dark period of The Cure, like, you can tell it's a great band. Like, they're great musicians. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of really fantastic just individual tracks on these on these three albums, and you can tell just how talented they are. It just wasn't doing anything for me. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it's impressive. I mean, this came out in April of 1980, and, I mean, the other one just came out less than a year prior. So, I mean, in a pretty short amount of time, they actually do focus into something, uh, you know, more unique than the kind of music they might have been making yes. prior to that. Yeah. Because Boys Don't Cry, and I'm sure Three Imaginary Boys is going to be pretty similar, sounded mm-hmm. to me like, oh, these are some talented musicians who went and listened to The Clash and The, and the Sex Pistols, and then yeah. they came out and did their own thing. But it's pretty similar to, like, The Clash in particular. Um but I've heard yeah. this before. Like I've heard variations on this before. And now you get into, now you get into the, the real eighties albums. And it's like, okay, this is new. This is different. Mm-hmm. And people responded to it. You know, uh, Chris Perry was hesitant at first because it is such a departure from that first album. Uh, but it did actually outsell the the previous record. So, I mean, if you do, as we've seen, you know, a few different times, if you do what speaks to you, there, there'll be an audience generally that'll, it'll resonate with. Yep. Uh, Matthew Hartley, after this uh, album, would leave the group, uh, citing creative differences. But perhaps even more impactful than that, e- actually, each band member uh, had a family member pass away during this time, which Robert Smith mentioned in an interview with Rolling Stone, and that really uh, seemed to dictate the direction of the next album. Uh, nearly all of the songs would be written and finalized in studio, so the writing credits as well as production are credited to the whole band for their third full length, Faith, released in April of '81 play a little bit of the song The Funeral Party and then we will talk about that record.
I get where they're coming from with the the fact that each of them had had a, a death in their family. The funeral party, though, is just to me the kind of the stereotypical encapsulation of all of these three early '80s albums. It's like, yeah, this is this is what those three albums all sound like, and I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. <laughs> I thought that this one, at least with Faith in general, but this song also, you know, they started to at least try to branch in slightly different directions to see kind of different variations on a theme uh, that they were, that I thought was interesting. Like the funeral party, you know, has kind of that dream pop synth vibe. Uh, and then you've got a song like Primary, which is just straight up the most Joy Division song that they've ever made. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad you brought up Primary. That's actually easily my favorite song off of this album, and actually I think my, my favorite song of the, the trio of albums here. And I, mm -hmm. I love what they... I love what they do with the guitars in in Primary, that, you know, there's no... There's no rhythm guitar. There's no lead guitar. It's literally just two basses. Yeah. And that's what they're going with. It's like, that's cool. I like that they're, I like the, the fact that they did that and that they, they got something really awesome out of it. Yeah. I think that sound, that song sounds great with the, yeah, like you said, just two bass guitars, not even any regular guitars. Robert yeah. Smith, I think is playing a six string and Simon's playing a regular four string bass. But yeah, it sounds awesome. I think that is that and Funeral Party were my two favorites from this one, I think. But the, and of course, there's two different sides of the coin. So I like that there's at least a little more variety on Faith than there is in 17 Seconds. Yes. Oh, the the uh, artwork for this too was uh, done by Pearl Thompson, once and future member of the band, which was cool. Mm. But yeah, I think this one is a little more. I found this one to be a little bit more of an interesting listen. I like the second side in in general, the way that the songs actually kind of flow together in a fun way but yeah i mean it's it, they were refining at this point right this is another yeah, album yeah. in another year so they're refining the sound that is kind of becoming what the cure is at this point it's gonna be another one of these bands that that really evolves in an interesting way over the course of the decade and this is one of the bands that and we've, we've talked about different bands that have different waves of evolution where you start out some way and then you peak in the middle of the decade and then by the end of the decade you're kind of in decline this is a decade or this is a band that just evolves over the course of the decade and, and really just keeps getting better and better and better with almost not quite but almost each successive album is is an advance on the one before yeah definitely and the and each one to this point and for really up through wish each album does sell more than the last so i mean they everything they try keeps working for everybody yep. surprisingly which you, which is rare to see i think yeah uh but the the dark place that the band was in at this time fueled their drug and alcohol use at, as well uh and that put them, everybody in a rough place during the faith tour and then in the creation of their next album Robert Smith went to the uh he wanted he wanted the next one to be what he called the ultimate fuck off record at this point so he was not afraid of uh, alienating any listener even though it, all of his plans never seemed to work they, everybody seemed yeah. to enjoy it uh, but he doubled down on the darkness doubled down on the gloom and that is also when he starts to craft the, the trademark look that he would uh, wear with the makeup uh, his heavy eyes smudged lipstick all of which would melt and run all over his face during the course of a show uh, and it also changed up their recording environment. They went to a new studio, Rack Studios in London, with a new producer, Phil Thornalley, uh, who Smith chose based on his work with the Psychedelic Furs. 
Uh, the fruit of this intense labor was Pornography, released in May of 1982. Play a little bit of the opening track, 100 Years, and then we will be back to talk about that album. Definitely. And I, and I think for me, what set this album apart from the last two is the, the heavy percussion that uh, each song is kind of dr- built around. Uh, yeah. I liked on this one in particular, uh, Lowell was actually discussing it on Twitter recently, saying that they plugged the drum machine into two guitar amps. He had the uh, bass amp into a guitar amp and the uh, kick or the snare drum into a bass amp and then recorded the drums coming out of those amps, which just makes it sound enormous i think that that to me was what when you know when i was separating all three of these albums trying to find what's the what's the one thing it's really the the rhythm and the drums on this album i think in yeah, particular yeah. would sell it whereas it's the basses on faith or really yeah or really the lack of guitar or the you know the wait well, yeah right right but what was your fate what was your takeaway from this album uh, this one, so I was, you know, reading, reading up on the album and the, the note that I have here is there's a Rolling Stone journalist who said that this, uh, that Cureheads love this album and normal listeners will find it impenetrable. <laughs> uh, and I did find it mostly impenetrable. Like this is still okay. definitely in that, in that trio of, of dark, depressing high schooler writing sad poetry uh, period of the cure. However, uh, 100 years is a really good song. And another, like surprisingly, some of my favorite songs come from this trio of albums that I really just generally didn't like. And one of them was cold, which is another, uh, like really, really good song in the midst of this album, which I wasn't a big fan of. Like that song jumped out at me immediately. And I've, you know, I've listened to it numerous times since, and it, it still does. Like, the, there's something about the imagery in that one that I'm like, okay, this holds up. 
I like this is a one. college student writing depressing poetry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, a, he's slightly older now at this point. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the one right before that. I like A Strange Day a lot. That and 100 that one's Years not are bad. my two favorites. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely a step up for me from Faith in 17 Seconds. Like, as I said, like the, the, the band is getting better and better and honing their sound. So if 17 mm-hmm. Seconds is not that great of an album and Faith is, is good but doesn't really speak to me like pornography, I'm still not going to go back and listen to again. But I'm, I'm listening to it and it's like, okay, I, I recognize this is, a really good, this is a really good album. This is a good product. Yeah. Would you say that the, of of this three of this trilogy, would you say pornography is your favorite? Uh, pornography is definitely my favorite. Yes. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I, I think it's the one where they it, it's especially with just the drums all over this. I think it's the most fun yeah, to listen yeah. to still. While while also, if you really want a dark, gloomy record, it's still actually pretty fun to listen to and turn up the volume with. Uh, but then listen to Disintegration. It's coming. We're <laughs> right, gonna get there. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, there are other ones later maybe that I would certainly listen to first. But yeah. I think uh, if, you've, if you're if you stuck with this trilogy for some reason, it stuck's probably harsh. But <laughs> I think... If you're on a desert island and you've made poor choices... <laughs> if you're on a desert island with these three Cure albums, it's probably the saddest island <laughs> in the ocean. <laughs> Although I guess in 1982, the island that you're stuck on is just England, right? Right, right, of course, yeah. <laughs> Again, are... Thatcher is a hell of a drug, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was really putting these boys through the ringer. Uh, but after porno- or after recording pornography, Simon Gallup decides that he's had enough and leaves the band, and Phil Thornalley would actually replace him as the bass player for the live shows. And around this time, the future of The Cure is actually a little uncertain. Uh, Robert Smith rejoined Susie and the Banshees for a bit, playing shows with them in 82 and 83, and he and Stephen Severn collaborated on their side project, The Glove, releasing Blue Sunshine in August of 83, which we heard uh, last season in our bonus recommendations episode. Uh, and then in 84, Susie and the Banshees would also release Hyena, the only LP where uh, Robert Smith appears on the record. Uh, and there were a few Cure singles that we kind of alluded to earlier released during this time, uh, which were decidedly more upbeat uh, than what they had made to this point. Or kind of hearkening back to maybe the first album a little bit, right? You've got The Walk, uh, The Love Cats, and a few other singles. Uh, and their B-sides were all collected onto a compilation called Japanese Whispers, which was released in December of 83. Uh, Love Cats in particular heated, or uh, it kind of featured a lineup that they would turn to a lot during this time. Thorn Alley on bass, Lol playing keyboards now, and drummer Andy Anderson, who played on the Glove record. Uh, so this this group now kind of gets Smith in the mood to focus back on the cure again. He had enough ideas floating around that he wanted to get into the studio, which he actually started doing during the recording of Hyena with the Banshees. Uh, Thorn Alley was off engineering an album for Duran Duran uh, 7 and the Ragged Tiger, the follow-up to Rio. Lull was often too far in the bag to be any help in the production studio. So Smith handled 99% of all the songwriting and instruments on this album coming up, uh, except for the drums, which Andy Anderson did. Uh, but this is practically a Smith solo album at this point, which he had much as, as much as admits. Uh, but the resulting album, released in April of 84, is The Top. I'll play a bit of its lead single, The Caterpillar, and then we'll discuss the album.
This one is definitely like a what would be called retrospectively a transitional album, right? Yes. Th- this is them moving out of the gloom and into something a little more pop focused. It still has a little bit of the psychedelic vibe of the glove. Uh, some of the songs even were holdovers from those sessions. Uh, but, you know, slightly poppier, slightly more experimental, but it still, I think it still does sound like The Cure. What do you think? It does. I don't think they're, I think transitional is a good word to describe this album because they're not there yet. Like whatever, wherever they're going, they haven't gotten there and they will in a couple of years. But mm-hmm. uh, this one, like I don't, I honestly don't have too much to say about this album because I, I'm looking at the track list and I barely remember any of these songs <laughs> i don't know i don't know if that's your reaction to yeah i think you know it's it's certainly i don't confuse it with the last three uh and i don't necessarily hold it in the regard that i'm about to hold the other ones in so right it's a, it has some decent songs i like the caterpillar uh i like the second song on here too bird mad girl i think that's a good one i think i think there are good songs on here but it just doesn't have you know the last one's uh, even if they were a little gloomy, they were very cohesive. And I don't yeah. know that this one has that cohesiveness. That and There was like a substance to those last albums. Mm-hmm. Like as, as much as I've, I've said like negative stuff about the last albums, like there's a substance to it. There's a vision. They're realizing the vision. This one, like, I don't know if there's a vision to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, it feels like, okay, I've got enough ideas for an album. I guess I might as well make one, right? That, yeah, that's yeah. sort of what it does feel like. I don't think any of it's terrible, but at the no. same time, you know. Yeah, it's all fine. That's the thing. Yeah. He does have enough good ideas for an album. It's just, it yeah. is, is that album as cohesive as the last? And I don't think it is. We're going to get to uh, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, which is the the obligatory double album. And we'll always, <laughs> you know, with every every double album, we always say, well, you know, you can for the most part, you could probably knock a few of these songs off and just release it as a single album. It'd probably be even better. I think this album, you could probably knock off a few songs and release it as like an EP or an extended single. Yeah. And you'd be fine. Or maybe even take some of those singles that you'd released before this and then swap them out for maybe a couple of these songs. I don't know if they're, they're a little goofy, but there's goofy songs on here too. Just make, <laughs> go go full in, make a big goofy yeah, album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so after the top... Uh, Phil Thorne Alley would return to the lineup uh, for their tour and Pearl Thompson would fill in as well uh, afterwards though Andy Anderson would part ways with the band and drummer Boris Williams would join the group <laughs> so you know has, we t- yeah go ahead has there been an album yet where like no one has left immediately after this is like every single album right yeah we're five albums in they're very well could be a different lineup <laughs> each time <laughs> which you know we talked about um, Game Theory had some different members coming and going each album and the fall obviously was a big one where they had a lot of turnover but the the cure is giving them a run for their money honestly I was yeah I'm, I, I apologize to the fall for making some actually no I don't apologize <laughs> to the fall for making so much fun of them I apologize for the fall for for assuming that they were somehow special or different or unique because clearly they're not yeah I think what's different, just, the only different thing is they did it for 40 years rather than like just in the yeah. span of 10 or so like these other ones. <laughs> yeah, there is something special about that. Like they 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 went through literally everyone in the UK by the time they were done. <laughs> yeah, practically. Uh, but let's see, uh, Thornally would, uh, you know, here we go. After the tour, Thornally would leave as well. 
uh, which right. you know he had other commitments at this point too. He's he's engineering and producing. Oh, there's always a point. reason. <laughs> but this would open the door for Simon Gallup to return to the band. Uh, so with Lowell staying on keys, uh, then we had Boris on drums, Simon on bass, Pearl on guitar, and Robert Smith on the vocals, as well as a little bit of every other instrument. Uh, this five piece took to Angel Recording Studios in London with the top producer Dave Allen co-producing with Smith and they got to work on their sixth studio album The Head on the Door released in August of 85 I'll play some of the lead single and opening track In Between Days and then we will talk about the record So this was the first album that to me sounds like what I know, what I think of when I think of The Cure. Like Mm -hmm. this is the first album that sounds like that to me. And you get it from just, we just heard it, like literally the first few lines of In Between Days. Like it just, it kicks off with that sound. It's like, okay, now, now we're in the territory that I'm familiar with. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When I heard this one, I was like, okay, here we go. Now we're getting into it. Yep. And yeah. in between, another great opening track. Like that's that's a fantastic song too. Definitely, yeah. It's it's a great song. It's one I obviously recognize right away, and it's a perfect. It, it sets the tone perfectly for for now this new uh, this new cure that is kind of you know they're a five piece now. They've got all the gloomy stuff. It's not necessarily out of their system, but it's it's now able to be twisted into different ways that is not such a, a dirge. That they're having they're having fun on this album it sounds like yeah and this is the first album actually no boys don't cry was like this too but this is the mm-hmm. first album where i wasn't a hundred percent sure which was my favorite song on the album like i went back and forth between in between days and the baby screams push mm-hmm. is a great song six push different ways yeah. is a really good song like there's several really really good songs on this one yeah this is a really strong album I, th- I, I was kind of doing the same thing i was you know putting together the songs i liked and a lot came off of this really i think the song screw is kind of the only one that i don't love on this album that's okay the one yeah. song that i was like yeah it's fine but and that's the second to last song on the album. So when you get that deep in and you're like, okay, this one's only fine. That's still <laughs> that's pretty you good. Could drop. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah, push like you mentioned was another one that I really liked, and th- that and in between days probably were my two favorites on here. Okay. 
For me, it was in between days and the baby screams. Although the first time through, I liked the baby screams better, and then the second time through, I was like, okay, no, it's it's definitely in between days. Like that's the that's number one, but mm-hmm. they're both really good and and push, yeah, for sure. I think yeah, I think the album just has a great flow to it. All the songs mm-hmm. are so good, as we mentioned. I think all the instrumentation sounds great. I think this this is uh, this is why the top is called transitional, right? Because he was they were building to this. Robert Smith had to lay down a little bit of groundwork to transition from the one sound to this, but I think everybody picked up on it pretty quick. It also, I have to point out, has a great sax solo on a night like this by uh, yeah Ron Howe, friend of theirs, fellow musician. Uh, but I think that was that was another track that uh, that made me like it cannot be an 80s band you got the synth you got the drum machines you got the sax solo yeah it's funny you've got the the, you've got a the british thatcher era emo (laughs) it is it is decidedly an 80s album but i think it does still manage to like you know it doesn't necessarily sound too dated i don't think i don't think so no i think it holds up pretty well yeah yeah i mean part of the thing we mentioned with this show in general was like I was pretty much purposefully avoiding 80s music for a long time for, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe some obvious reasons. But it's the, you have to dig in sometimes to find that you can operate in the 80s and make good music, too, it turns out. Yeah. There's also some good music that, like, sounds very definitively like the 80s. Sure. Like, there's a reason it sounds... There's a reason we associate the 80s with this music. It's because the music was so good that it just defined the four-month period that it uh, that it dominated. Yeah. But Huey Lewis is a good guy. Yeah, exactly. We we listened to sports. It was pretty good. It was good. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> uh, but Head on the Door continued the trend of each album selling more than the last, but with an even greater increase in American sales. They went on a world tour after this album's release, took this momentum to the south of France, where they set up to record their follow-up with David Allen returning as a co-producer and Studio Miraval, I believe, is the studio they went to in France. And that would be the home of the songwriting and general revelry that The Cure would unleash upon that area. And the band was still partying pretty hard during these sessions. But uh, spirits were generally pretty high, and they found themselves creating uh, music at a pretty prolific pace, as we sort of alluded to. This is the obligatory double album for their career. And that album... Did they lose anyone in between Head on the Door and Kiss Me? I think this is the same lineup. So they did manage to hold on. Hey, we have a winner. (laughs) Exactly. That's how you know Head on the Door is good. They didn't immediately, like, have people leave the band as soon as it was done. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's why they had to go to the south of France. They lured everybody there at the party and then just had got an album (laughs) at the same time. Uh, But Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me was released in May of 87 play a little bit of the song Just Like Heaven and then we will discuss the album.
This one is obviously another Hall of Fame Cure track, but uh, listening to these back to back, it really does drive home that it is pretty similar to In Between Dreams. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I have a weird relationship with Just Like Heaven as a song because I know it, I like it, it's a fantastic song. I have, for some strange reason, I have a hard time remembering it in my head. Like, every time I listen to this song, it it starts, and three seconds in, I'm like, oh, yes, that one, I know that one, and just for whatever reason, like, it drops out of my head as soon as it's it's done. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I definitely like the song a lot, but it it would often get mixed up with Just Like Heaven. I would start humming one to yeah, myself, and then all with... of a sudden I'm singing the other one too. Yeah, yeah. And that's I know that's a me thing. That's not a that's not a Just Like Heaven thing, but there's just something about this song I can't wrap my mind around. It's a great song. All right, so we do have to, of course, get to it. Do you, what do you think? Did this need to be a double album? No, I, this could have, like, honestly, I thought this whole album was a big step down from Head on the Door, and I would have been perfectly fine if this had been an extended single. Yeah, I I pretty easily made a 10-song version of this album that I think is fantastic and probably should be what maybe actually came out. That's probably blasphemous to say at this point, but I think uh, th- that was... I think you could say that about... Like, people say that about the White Album. Like, you can say that about any <laughs> double album, and you're and you can, you're can okay. Yeah, I, I think this. there are a lot of really fun songs, and I think uh, you can almost remove every other song from this, and it's actually probably a better album. Yeah. But I, I don't... I think that's probably the only thing for me that does make it a step down from Head on the Door, is that it is just too bloated. Because uh, I think that 10-song version is fantastic and actually gives head on the door run for its money i think it too part of part maybe your problem with just like evan uh, unless it's just the song in general it it is just kind of buried in the middle of the of its song nine of 18 so i mean if you're listening to this it doesn't have a, a chance to stand out practically i don't think what is the opening track on on album two right that's right. the it's the it's song one of side a of the second album so like if you're if you're thinking of it as, as two separate albums like that's the song that kind of kicks it off mm-hmm. I, I in my 10 song version i made it the second song on side two with with hey you being the the opening of side okay two. okay and then I think uh, the did fa- you switch up the did you switch up the order of the songs like are they are they in different orders as they are on the on the album a little bit the actual album yeah okay so here I'll let's I'll go down the track list let's see yeah you got to go down yeah <laughs> at this point okay so start with the kiss I think it's a great opening song still it sets the tone mm. and it, ha- it says kiss me kiss me kiss me so you gotta put that up front uh, then get catch out of there I don't think that song's that great torture though is a perfect song too. I, that's it is the third song on the regular album it's, it should be the second song i think um, right then, if the cure does a song called torture you gotta leave it there <laughs> yeah you gotta put it up front people are looking for it uh why can't i be you i go with that one for number three another single from it poppy keeps it going uh then right how beautiful you are i go after that and then i end side one with all i want which i think is a good closer for that side this is also a, it's really really crystallizing like what the point of this album is just from listening to the kiss torture why can't I be you how beautiful <laughs> you are all I want yeah like, yep you had one good night and now you can't stop thinking about it <laughs> exactly. I get it. it is funny there is there's one interview that I saw with uh, Robert Smith where they're asking you know you've got 
songs, you know, like, uh, you know, just like heaven and, uh, close to me from the last one, you know, are you, are you happier now? And he's like, you know, there were, I was happy sometimes before. I'm just having a better time writing about it now. So yeah, I, for one, I don't know that I believe him for that first part, but <laughs> well, he's married at this point, right? He, I think will be between these next two albums. I don't know if he is for this. One. Okay. Gotcha. But he did so have, he's, he's, yeah, there was another, he's getting very close to being married. Yeah. All certainly. Right. Cause, cause part of that bringing everybody to the South of France was everybody brought their girlfriends or wives as well. And so gotcha. There was, uh, in one, another interview, he mentions this, that everybody, all the girls would be in, you know, on the other side of the studio and they would rank all, like they'd give grades to all the songs to see what everybody thought. And that was part of how they assembled it. Which is which is fun, but I think maybe some of those grades were a little high, and that's what what it bloated the <laughs> album up. All right, so side two of the uh, the abridged version. Uh, like I said, "Hey You" kicks it off. Right. J- just like heaven. Uh, one more time, right after that. Uh, Icing sugar, right after that, which almost kind of feels like a reprise of "Hey You," which I think is fun. Both of those have another great sax part. And then you close it out with A Thousand Hours, which the first time listening to it, I was like, oh, this is a great closing song. And then two more songs played after that. <laughs> so there you go. There's my but 10 this is Andy's version. world. I can make this album however I want. <laughs> exactly. I have the technology. A phone. <laughs> the technology being just like a copy, paste, and delete. <laughs> yeah, just a, a playlist in iTunes. Yeah actually really simple technology we've all got it <laughs> yeah exactly uh but that yeah super easy barely an inconvenience <laughs> yeah, precisely but so yeah i think this is a, it's a fun album it just is definitely one that doesn't need to be a double just like we often say yeah but i mean sales again will continue to grow uh it was actually hit number six in the uk and number 35 uh in the u.s and just like heaven reached the top 40 in the u.s which is the first for the band uh, touring to increasingly large venues now, increasing the stress on Smith. As he approaches 30, he begins wondering about his wind- window of pop stardom. Is it closing? Should he have hit it earlier? Uh, and whether or not he earned his place, uh, you know, in these giant stadiums. And that goes, that of course informs the next album, Disintegration, which we talked about last season. But uh, after hearing all of these albums prior to Disintegration, Aaron, does it change how you view Disintegration at all? Uh, no, I don't think so. Like, I, I still end up coming back to, coming back to this as just a, a really solid album. Yeah, I think so too. I, I mean, it again, you know, outsold every other one. It was a huge album. Part of the reason we picked it. I still love the, the, some of the singles on here. Picture of You, Love Song. And I think it does, like we, like we mentioned earlier, if you want the heavy foreboding cure, this is a more enjoyable listen than the earlier trilogy, right? Yeah. And I think, I do think listening to the earlier trilogy does make me appreciate the, the second half of this album a little bit more because the, you know, the, the A side of this album is the one with all of the singles on it. And then you get to the B side and you've got these long tracks that take, you know, they're very slow burns. They Mm -hmm. take a long time to build. And if I'm just listening to this on its own in a vacuum, I'm probably going to be more inclined to be like, all right, let's get to it. Uh, So I'll, I'll be more 
inclined to, to stick with like a pictures of you or a love song or a mm-hmm. song like that. Uh, whereas after having listened to 17 seconds in faith and pornography, I understand where the band was coming from. So when I listened to a song like disintegration, the title track, yeah. like now I get what a huge advance forward disintegration is compared to those earlier albums, trying to do the same thing and just accomplishing it so much better in what's ultimately a shorter period of time, like nine minutes versus 35. Right. Um, so, like, I, I went back and listened to Disintegration a few times, and it really is a fantastic song. Slow build, yeah. uh, and and well well worth it, like, well-deserved, that, that well-earned. That song was another one that stood out to me, too, on, on a re-listen. I think that's a, it is really a great... They've done a good job, in general, making title tracks, I think, but this one is probably yeah. one that it does encapsulate that whole feeling of the album in, over the course of the runtime. And yeah. Yeah. So disintegration, I think, is still pretty great, and it is. It, it takes some of the experimentation, you know, some of the things that guitar and bass were doing on Faith. It takes some of the things that the drums are doing on Pornography, and blends it all together and informs it with some of the things they learned with on Head in the Door and Kiss Me. So I think it is certainly a, the culmination of what they've made so far. Yeah. finally just too out of his mind to be able to record any of this so he is credited on here as other instruments but as soon as the mixing was done he was out of the band and and it was practically out of the band before the mixing yeah, was done exactly. right he like, was pretty much out of it during do the a whole lot yeah. yeah so i mean he was generously credited it sounds like on this one but uh keyboardist roger o'donnell would brought in to be supplement and uh as Lowell left the band the Cure's Ascent, of course, continued, as we mentioned, with Wish in 92, including the single Friday I'm in Love, and yet again outsold every other album, reaching number one in the UK, finally, and number two in the US. Uh, they would release four more studio albums after that, Wild Mood Swings in 96, Blood Flowers in 2000, Self-Titled Album in 2004, and 413 Dream in 2008. Uh, they were, just last year, in 2019, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, the lineup has shifted around a few times, of course, during all that time. Currently, Smith is joined by Simon Gallup still on bass, as well as Roger O'Donnell still on keyboards, with Jason Cooper on drums and Reeves Gabriels on guitar. Smith has said as recently as February of 2020 that a new album is very close to completion. And, you know, as we know, nothing of note has happened since February 2020. So right, I don't, I don't yeah. know what the holdup is. I'm sure, is. They're, sure they're still in the studio finishing it up, right? <laughs> yeah, they actually, that's probably what it is. They actually couldn't leave the studio. They're quarantined <laughs> inside and have not been able to leave. 
It's done. We just need to get out the door. <laughs> Our head is on it. We just can't open it. <laughs> uh, but uh, Tim Pope, their longtime video director, uh, also mentioned in 2018 that he was working on a career-spanning documentary that I kind of, I put the cure kind of at the end of the season because I was hoping it would come out by the time we got to it, but it, it still has not come out, so I don't know. Maybe it'll come out next year, but fingers crossed. He's almost done. He just has to get to the office and touch up one more thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything's locked in the in the office he can't get to. Yeah. But it's been a pretty fascinating career for Robert Smith and the boys over all these years. A lot of incredible music made in uh, their own unique way. So now it's time to decide which of the songs and albums moved us the most. I'll start with you, Aaron. What ended this up is, being your top five? This is tough. Mm-hmm. This is real tough. Uh I had to go back and listen to, I think, I, I, I got a solid top 10. Um, yeah. And then I had to go back and listen to them several times to, uh, to actually figure it out. But I, I think I've got it. Uh, and surprisingly, a couple of these songs are from, actually several of these songs are from the earlier albums that I like, don't like the albums very much, but the individual songs mm-hmm. stand out. So number five is Cold off of Pornography. Number four is Primary off of Faith with a double bass. Boys Don't Cry. Mm-hmm. Number two is Just Like Heaven. And then Pictures of You is number one with a real strong honorable mention for In Between Days and Disintegration. They Those belong in some top five, just not this one. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I ended up also, I had uh, put together a top 20 that I slowly mm-hmm. whittled down. And I had, you know, I had something from all of these on there. But uh, yeah, getting it down to five was tough. But I kick off mine with that number five, A Forest, from 17 Seconds. I still like okay. that one a lot. Uh, number four for me is A Strange Day from Pornography.
then I ended up with pictures of you at number three. Okay. Sort of number two, sort of a tie for one. <laughs> I have in between days, and at number one is just like heaven. So the two songs exactly. that you keep confusing. Yeah, all right. Songs are right. nice. They made it twice. <laughs> if you had to choose, though, is just like heaven number one. Yeah, just like heaven's number one. Still, okay. I think if I had to pick just yeah, one. Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah. So what did you end up picking for your top album? Uh, still disintegration. Although, if we have to choose one of the non-disintegration albums, definitely head on the door. Yeah, uh, mine. I went back and forth between disintegration and head on the door, and I actually, I think head on the door, at least right now, slightly came out ahead for me. Disintegration is definitely I still. Could, second, I can see that. I think. Yeah, I, need, I can see that. I think just right now, I needed a little bit poppier. Maybe that's why, mm-hmm. but just, yeah, those two, those two are those, those two for sure, I think. And then, yeah. So, so those were my top five. Uh, I did end up with a list of 16 songs that I had to go back and re-listen to again and again to get the top five. And of the 16 songs on my, like, this could be the top five list, nine of those 16 come off of those two albums. Wow. Yeah, yeah, let me see. Let me look at my top 20 and see. So I had, let's see, one, two, three, four from Disintegration and three from Head on the Door. So I guess I guess by okay. that math, maybe that's first. But I, I think, uh, you know, the whole album has a good vibe to it still. Yeah, yeah. I think what was, it, what was the, the episode we just did where I had like, three of my top five songs were all from the same album, but then my favorite album was something else. Yeah. I think that's happened once or twice now. I forget which one yeah. it was, but yeah. Cause there was, I'm looking at my stack of CDs here. I know. Well, I guess for Prince, I know you, there was a bunch of 1999 songs, but you end up saying, uh, Sign of the Oh Times yeah, that's it. it. And sign of the times was my number one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the only one, you know, of our returning artists, you know, I still thought Purple Rain was my favorite, and I still thought Let It Be was my favorite for the placements, but this was the first one to replace the one we heard last season, so mm-hmm. Head on the Door slightly edged out Disintegration, although they're both incredible. They're both real good, yeah. Let What's me... number three for you? Because we, we're, we're agreed on the top two. What's your third favorite? I guess my third... Well, I mean, the cheating answer is my 10-song version of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, but then okay, right. I think, I guess, if... Well, I guess I'd probably still take it, but I guess pornography would be right behind it. It'd be those two. Gotcha. Okay. That's that's where we start to diverge because my number three is Boys Don't Cry. Yeah, that one is really good. I think I'd probably put that next. Yeah, but mm-hmm. certainly it'd be above 
17 seconds and faith although i still like them yes but yeah i think there are enough songs off of uh boys don't cry that i would probably like i said if i if you have pornography you don't really need faith and 17 seconds <laughs> it's a funny way to put that but <laughs> <laughs> well it might help to have the 17 seconds <laughs> yeah yeah 15 is probably enough yeah, you know <laughs> depends on the pornography it depends on the pornography <laughs> And the speed of your Wi-Fi. You know. <laughs> yeah, if, if there's some buffering, you know, it might take a while. <laughs> well, that brings us closer and closer to the end of the season for Andy Hears the 80s. In fact, that's the last single band episode of the season. So next time, before we leave the decade behind, there is one stop we have to make. You know, I've always said that we aren't going to hear any hair metal on the show, but that doesn't mean that we should ignore all metal, I've decided. So next time on Andy Here's the 80s, we explore a variety of metal albums from the decade that show you don't need spandex and aquanet to headbang. So don't miss it. Is there still spandex? Wait, is there still <laughs> spandex and aquanet in these bands and they're just not known for well, them? Let's like... see. Maybe one or two. I don't think of Metallica as a hair band, but they had a lot of hair. Yeah, I guess it depends what product they use. Let's see. Once upon a time. <laughs> Some of these might. Well, well, we'll get to it. We'll find out next week. Tune in to see how right, many uh, right. cans of hairspray are used. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Robert Smith and The Cure for all the excellent music. Thank you to each and every one of you listening. And thank you, Aaron, for joining me. Thank you. Until next time, don't forget, it's never too late to discover great music that's new to you. See you next time. On the blog post for this episode, I wanted to get into something we didn't really touch on in the episode. And that's The Cure's music videos. Tim Pope made so many tremendous videos with the band. I've got a ranking of all of them along with our show notes at actin.wordpress.com. It's actn.wordpress.com. Go check it out. Let me know which videos are your favorites. Follow us on Twitter at AndyHearsIt, Facebook.com slash AndyHearsIt. Email me at AndyHearsIt at gmail.com. Rate and review the show. Tell your friends. And let me know, too, what are your favorite 80s tunes and which albums I still need to hear. Thanks again, and see you next time.